All right, welcome into the Salt City Hoops podcast. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com. We are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz, the 25-win Utah Jazz. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. And here alongside Ben Dowsett, writer, content contributor, etc. for Salt City Hoops. Um, so today, again, it's we're still in the middle of August. We still don't have NBA games for 45 days. We're We're dying here of sadness because basketball isn't back i guess football's back which is kind of nice although um i i, I like watching football games but i hate mentally because i know what football does to people and like i've just seen too much head injury coverage to really be able to like to really be able to enjoy football games anymore because i just see like the next junior say out there and i'm like oh no I watch Please football do just for, purely for the fantasy football. I'm a fantasy football geek. I okay. admit it. That's fair. You know, that's that's at that point it almost becomes video game esque, right? Like it, really, it pretty much is for me. It's, <laughs> it's money, money, adult video games. That's what it is. Okay, cool. So, and for me, of course, it's still soccer season. RSL plays the San Jose Earthquakes this Saturday. Okay, um, and even playing fantasy Premier League starting now. So, is that that's a thing? That is a thing. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and it and it is kind of cool, although pretty difficult because you know you don't know on a week to week basis who's going to score the goal and you know like even if you have say wayne rooney on your team who's an excellent striker you may not get a goal you know one out of every three weeks but anyway as you can tell it's august and so we're talking about football and soccer um i wanted to talk about one specific aspect of the game that doesn't get talked very much about in in kind of these serious circles and that's refereeing um and I think what happens with referee discussions is that we get some of these like crazy hardcore fans that are just like, no, the call was absolutely wrong. There's no way we – and it's really difficult to have like a reasonable discussion about it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, – but there are people out there who are doing really interesting work about NBA refereeing, and so I'm actually having those people brought onto the show today. So – uh, the first one we'll have Colin in a couple minutes. His name is John Ball. He did a uh, research paper on the topic at the 2014 uh, MIT Sloan Conference in Boston, the Sport- Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, and uh, did a did a great study on that. Kind of used well. We'll ask him about the study. Um, basically observed these referees over time, um, over, I believe, two NBA seasons, yeah. and to kind of notice these trends on uh, what calls are good at and what calls are not, and et cetera, et cetera. So we'll talk to him about that. And then we also have um, Brett Crane, probably better known as BJC7 on Twitter, uh, and he compiles all the refereeing statistics for the Utah Jazz, not for the Utah Jazz officially, but, um, you know, for example, checking how uh, Dick Bavetta performs in jazz games so you know the jazz have like a two and five record when dick bavetta was refereeing them yeah. in the ty corbin era i was gonna say it's so, more how the more how the jazz perform in dick bavetta officiated okay games. fair yeah so um and so that's kind of interesting to see you know are there biased referees with the jazz did did ty corbin's romantic advances to violet palmer make any difference <laughs> um that was one of the more interesting subplots of ty corbin's <laughs> era if you will is just that on ongoing joke about Violet Palmer joining or Violet Palmer just loving Ty Corbin <laughs> and then it didn't bear out like he's not the Jazz were not better when Violet Palmer actually refed but oh well shocking um 
the Jazz also made a uh, signing this week, Toure Murray. I'm going to get that pronunciation right consistently. Toure is how you pronounce his first name. Signed with the Utah Jazz. Uh, just before we get John on, it looks like he's joining us in just one minute. Um, what What's your thought on the deal? Um, I, I think it's fairly standard. As we discussed, There's a, the guarantees are generally going to be a lot of what's important for a, a more of a depth guy like that. And there's a very small guarantee on it, only a, a quarter million for this year and no guarantee for next year. So the Jazz are really flexible. You know, if Murray... We've, we've seen little tiny flashes of upside in the tape that you can watch of him so far. And it, it, everything's very unsure there but if he were to show some things and be a viable NBA player you can keep him on the roster all the way through the end of next season if not can cut him nice and easily you could even cut him this season if you needed to if something good came up and you'd only have to pay him a quarter million I think it's a good little situation let me ask who do you think is a better prospect him or Carrick Felix because they are both kind of in that same mold of like kind of an old rookie 24 years old um and have shown really not a whole lot in their first NBA year yeah I really don't know <laughs> that I can say one or the I, I want to say Murray just because for his position he's a little longer. Um, that is a small factor though, and that's the and I'm not basing it on really enough information. I have I there's just not quite enough yet to have seen of either guy to really like be able to make a conclusion. I, I guess if gun to my head I was forced to pick one, I would probably say Murray just because he he is, you know, he's six five as a point guard. That's pretty long for the for the position. And if he if he turns out to be something good, then he's got that length to be a strong defender if he can, you know, if he can do some things on the offensive end. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. I, I think I'd go with Murray as well. Um I just think that the probably you're more likely to become an NBA player with your offense being your elite skill rather than your defense. Yeah. yeah. Um, just because I think one of those things is effort and one of those things is more talent, if you will. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, we now do have John on the line. John, are you there? Yeah, hey, Andy. Hey, thanks for you? joining us. So this is John Ball. Um, first of all, John, if you don't mind, give us a little few-second bio about yourself. Um, tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I have been involved with um, the NBA ecosystem, I guess you can say, for about maybe 12 years. Um, I originally got started by creating the first Yao Ming site that okay. ever <laughs> nice. existed. And uh, through that exercise, I got to know Yao eventually because his agents really liked my work, and they designated my site as the official Yao Ming site. And uh, with that came the privilege to be able to not only get to know Yao, but uh, I also got a media credential. Uh, with the Rockets, and so I got to know a lot of the uh, Houston front office just by being there in the locker room. And um, I had this idea after consulting with uh, Synergy Sports uh, a few years earlier that uh, there's a part of the game that everyone's frustrated about but no one has ever really analyzed. And I asked Yao and a few other players and uh, Houston front office if they thought that kind of information would be useful, analytics on the refs. And they said, yeah. So um, a few years later, uh, I decided to take the deep dive into uh, trying to create uh, an entity that would examine the referees in more detail. And so here I am. Cool. Okay. So then you had this um, paper that we've talked about a little bit um, in the Sloan Conference this year. Tell us, I guess, give us the overview of that paper and some of the quick conclusions that we found, and then we'll kind of go into them as, as the interview progresses. Sure. So um, 
the the overview of the paper is to really try to identify quantitatively and objectively if referees do have tendencies. Uh, there had been um, a lot of discussion anecdotally that refs have tendencies from uh, former players and coaches. And um, I thought, well, there's really only one way to tackle that problem, and that's uh, to uh, use a lot of the experience that I've gained in having every, just about every referee call logged uh, each season for the past two seasons, now three, two at the time that I wrote the paper, um, to really determine quantitatively if that's true. So um, that's really the premise of the paper, is to objectively identify if there are referee tendencies, and uh, as demonstrated by many of the, the charts that I have in that paper, uh, it's very easy to see that they do. Um, so it confirmed a lot of the uh, anecdotal evidence that was out there mentioned by players and coaches that refs have tendencies. And uh, so really then I go into the paper into seeing if teams can get an edge uh, by using referee analytics and how predictive, uh, if you do know the referee's tendencies, how how much could that help you as a team um, going into a game? For example, um, one way to do that is to determine how many missed calls there are in a game, and so that becomes a much more complex exercise, but uh, something that I tackled in the paper uh, for a 50-game sample set. And uh, when the referees do miss a call or make a bad call, how much does that match up with the uh, the tendencies of the referees that you knew beforehand? And there was a pretty high match rate. Interesting. So that's really the uh, the overview of the paper. So give us a couple of examples of these kind of tendencies that you found, um, you know, maybe amongst all refs, uh, you know, with regards to, say, block charges or traveling or anything like that. Yeah. Um, really the... Kind of one main theme that occurs is that the more subjective the call is, the more variance there is in the frequency of referees, uh, individual referees calling those violations. For example, you could have um, uh, contact fouls, like personal fouls, shooting fouls, where most of the time uh, when there is contact, uh, referees will make more calls. Uh, because they're more obvious. And that said, though, referees will make more calls, or excuse me, referees will still have large tendencies among each other or discrepancies between each other uh, when they do make these contact foul calls. So there's enough variance there, I think, enough to be significant. But and the, the more subjective the call becomes, for example, like defensive three seconds where you've got a lot going on that the referee has to account for. For example, you know, are they in the lane for three seconds? So they have to count to three in their head, and they also need to see, um, of course, look at the position of uh, the player's feet. And then if it's defensive three seconds, they need to see if they're actively guarding their an opponent in the vicinity. So there's a lot of uh, subjectivity there among those three variables that um, make for a very large discrepancy among referees because it is so subjective. Traveling is the same way. Um, 
you know, with all the different things you can do with the ball, and um, some refs call many more travels than others. And then block charges is another one where you know, it's widely um, received as the toughest call to make in basketball uh, because of the contact that occurs and is the defensive player positioned in time. Uh, there are some referees who call twice as many blocks than charges. Wow. Which uh, obviously doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then there are some that uh, call half as many blocks as charges. So hmm. wide swings in that category, too. Yeah. So now, you know, for those, by the way, wanting to go and read the specifics of this, you can go to the, the all Sloan conference papers are available online. You can just search John Ball in the, the sports analytics conference. I'm looking at the paper right now. And uh, what I wanted to ask, John, is, is kind of a little bit more of like a general question and t- sort of taking it to the next step a little bit. And it, this is the the most general question down that line of thinking, but I, I also feel like it's the one that might have the most uh, topics for conversation is that how do you, you know, let's say you're an NBA GM or you're an NBA coach, where do you, how do you take the information that you found and how do you make that tangible, relevant information that you can use, that you can, you know, you can tell your players before games? How, you, what kind of a format sort of would you take for for furthering that analysis and giving it an on court impact? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've talked to a lot of teams um, about my work. Not all of them, but um, you know, pretty large majority of the teams in. And uh, in different capacities, not uh, all GMs or coaches, but uh, that becomes really an interesting proposition because um, it's very subjective still because it's still in the early stages. I mean, the paper just came out in late February, early March on how best to use the data. And uh, let me know if I'm kind of going off track here, but really the the primary thing that I've encountered in talking to analytics people and coaches and uh, gyms is that they're all interested, but uh, some of them think that, well, you know what, the players and the, and the coaching staff, they have so many analytics now to account for that we're afraid of overwhelming the players with too much information. Hmm. And so, you know, it really starts becoming a discussion about how to integrate disinformation uh, among the coaching staff and the players. You know, GMs, especially a lot of the new ones, uh, they tend to want to try new analytics. Uh, some don't, though. They, they maybe anticipate that the coaches already have enough. You know, there's been a lot written about coaches and uh, front office staff and analytics folks. There being the strain between them about how, you know, the, the analytics people and maybe the advanced GMs using analytics, they want to push using more analytics, but the coaching staff uh, and the players, they tend to push back a little bit. And so it, it's, it's, it varies from team to team, um, but still to this day, I think most uh, GMs are very cautious to try to push any new analytics uh, like mine onto their coaching staff and players. And so... Uh, but there are some GMs and some coaches who are very interested, and um, then it becomes a question of how do we integrate this in their workflow, in their pregame planning. Some teams have been uh, very receptive to it. I can't get into specifics on which ones, but um, you know, something tells me this is probably how analytics 
the advanced analytics these days uh, started out. Like when I used to consult for Synergy, it was the same kind of thing. Um, you know, we already have enough work to do. The players are have enough responsibilities. Do we want to really overwhelm them? Uh, but slowly over time, if the analytics are tried and they uh, get positive results in any way, then they tend to want to try to use more of it. Yeah. So um, that's kind of the, the, a summary of uh, the state of where I've seen how these analytics have been perceived in the, in the league. Well, and it kind of makes sense. I mean, if the discrepancy is as big as your research shows, and I, and I think it is, um, you know, if you had a couple of referees out there who called consistently more blocks and charges, as an offensive player, you would want to attack the basket significantly more often. I mean, the... The difference is you're talking about is like a call or two per game. Am I right? Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, for every one of these violations, uh, I mean, they can manifest themselves. Uh, you know, each each game, and so when you add up all the different violation categories, you know, there's probably seven or eight that occur. Uh, you're talking about well, it, you know, according to the study that we did, you know, there's an average of a, and this is. Uh, being conservative of 20 missed, bad, or questionable calls a game, and so uh, that occur in 20 different possessions. And um, so, just on that alone, if you want to avoid bad, missed, or questionable calls, you know, if you just get a fraction of those 20, or it's usually usually you can at least split 10 to 10 for each team. You know, if you can get a fraction of those 10, maybe two or three to go your way. You know, you're talking about maybe two trips more to the free throw line, which means, you know, three to four more points. Um, so your offensive and your defensive efficiency can really go up. Uh, if it just goes up one to two points, you can go from being uh, a mediocre team in the middle of the pack in, in regard to efficiency to being, you know, top ten, top five, depending on where you are, which is really a, um, a closely watched uh, harbinger of of where you are as an offense or defense. So if you can yeah. improve your defensive efficiency a, a one or two points, that's a significant improvement. Um, you know beyond what you're other you're doing elsewhere with your players to improve efficiency. Yeah, and and I I kind of see the point of view of the NBA teams on this. You know we are telling our guys so much to do analytically that maybe there is an overload there. But to me. You know, let's say that you're having your players take the most efficient shots. Let's say you're having them take corner threes. You know, maybe the difference there is worth like 0 .5, 0 .05, or .1 um, points per possession there. Well, if you make a difference on the refereeing side, you know, it's not just a small swing every time you make a good choice on your shot selection. It's a, it's a big swing if you, you know, can take advantage of these kind of referee tendencies. Like I say, maybe going into the paint more if you know that there are refs who call more blocks um you know if you have a referees that are not calling defensive three seconds maybe you stay in the paint and uh, are able to take advantage of more paint protection and so it's th those kind of things that in, in my mind at least could make a almost a bigger difference than kind of the standard analytics that have been put into place thus far i absolutely agree and you know it's funny that um you mentioned like the corner threes because i was thinking about that the other day uh you know, it's it's very similar to let's say if you're a defense and you want to uh, you have this philosophy that you're going to leave bad three point shooters open, right, and just make them hurt you. Uh, and if they start hitting shots, maybe you make an adjustment. But 
uh, not to name out, you know, or any particular player, but for example, like Ricky Rubio, you know, a lot of teams leave him open and they just bear him to make, you know, to hit those, those long three pointers. Well, when Ricky Rubio, when he makes a three, do teams end up, uh, start covering him right after the first three he makes? No, probably not. They're going to say that's, that was an anomaly and he will probably miss you know, seven or more shots out of every 10 that he takes from beyond the three-point line. So the same mentality can be taken uh, about referees uh, in in understanding and using uh, their tendencies to your advantage. And it's not like this is really, you know, it's interesting. It's not like it's anything new because in my research, and I included one of the quotes in the paper, but I found even more of these anecdotal quotes from um, – Interestingly, from older coaches, before the the advent of these new advanced analytics that's overwhelming everybody, uh, back in the day, you know, maybe in the 80s and, and 90s, uh, you know, I've seen these coaches and or former coaches and former players saying, yes, we know the referees have tendencies and we game plan for it. And uh, so they they had been doing it before – uh, my analytics came out, but it was all very anecdotal. You know, their whole keeping books on the officials um, was just something that they had in their head and as a gut feel from just the games that they've experienced. Uh, well, now there's a more precise way to try to use the tendencies to their advantage like they did, you know, 20, 30-plus years ago. Um, so now with all the advanced analytics, that's kind of pushed a lot of the subjective analytics um, that they used to use, uh, these um, books that they kept on officials, quote-unquote, um, that's been pushed to the side before, for more of these fancy uh, graphical statistics that they now have. But you know, maybe there's now a time for those analytics that they used to use anecdotally that would be more precise and statistical, um, and they can use them like they did in the past. So uh, I, I think it could make a comeback because um, you talk to most of these old old school coaches and they say, yeah, we know the refs have tendencies and we used it to our advantage when we could. Yeah, and I, you know, you kind of talked about sort of the the larger statistical trends of it, and I wonder whether that might be an angle. You, you talk about sort of some of the more old school coaches bringing it back a little bit and maybe having a more detailed and and correct uh, quantifiably way to 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 sort of define these things what about more of a uh, rather than looking at specific referees so like okay we've got these three referees tonight we know two of them are you know generally call more blocks than charges or something like that which of course those things could have their own tangible impacts from game to game but what about things more like and I know that, that you may or may not be able to go into certain levels of detail in terms of what you've tracked here but in terms of tracking overall for the entire league all their referees as a whole you know do do we tend to see more of certain types of calls when the score is closer or when the score is not as close do we tend to see more you know I I read it I don't remember where this came from at all I tried to find it on online before we started the the podcast but I couldn't find it I remember reading an article last year about how defensive three second call if well three second calls in general just took this massive nosedive in the fourth quarter and overtime of NBA games I don't again I don't remember what the sample period Period was or or who wrote this or whatever, but I, that inherently that made sense to me. Like you, I think you see a lot, you, at least just from my eye test, you 
see a lot less of certain types of calls and certain times in the game. Do you think that there could be, again, without going into any detail that you can't necessarily go into, do you think that tracking those sorts of things, you know, how, are there lots of calls when it's a blowout? Do, you, do referees call the game more closely? Do they ever actually maybe take pity on a team being blown out? Calls like that, that if coaches had those types of overall tendencies in their mind, that they might be able to game plan a little more efficiently overall. Yeah, I think that's a really good point in that um, if you can take these overall tendencies and make it less complicated for the players so that they don't have to account for, well, the one ref you know, in this game, they call lots of blocks over charges, but one doesn't and the other is about neutral. right? And so it starts getting confusing maybe uh, for players at this time to kind of digest all this information. So the key is to go into a game like you said uh, having these overall tendencies, like let's say maybe you know two-thirds of all referees uh, call less defensive three seconds uh, than the average. And so you can kind of go in with these overarching themes uh, to make it much simpler. In fact, I think what you mentioned, that stat on the defensive three seconds, that's, that's something that uh, we studied, and it might have been something we shared with a journalist who uh, wrote that article you oh, mentioned. That might have been you guys. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. It definitely takes a massive uh, nosedive uh, going into the fourth quarter. And, um, you know, I think there's lots of reasons for that. I, I, I don't want to bore you with the details. But, um, yeah, the key is, to, you know, right now, if this, if, as, as coaches try to figure out how to simplify these numbers to, to be actionable and usable without uh, creating paralysis by analysis among their players, mm is to say, yeah, let's go into this game. You know, we know that um, most of the time, if you're, well, we already know it anecdotally. They say if you're aggressive with the ball and you take it strong to the basket, you're going to get fouled, right? And you're going to go to the free throw line, and this is James Harden. He's made a career out of it, uh, as well as a lot of other players, by just being aggressive. So you can go into a game with that game plan, being more aggressive, um, but then the the art of it becomes, well, you know, maybe James Harden, he should kind of pick and choose his spots more now that he knows the tendencies of every ref. Because in those, let's say, those two-thirds that will reward you for uh, taking it strong to the basket and, uh, and calling a foul against the defenders, maybe now you can kind of be a little more picky uh, or choosy with it and say, you know what? I've got a scattering report before tonight's game, and, yeah, the overarching thing is that most referees will reward you. But you know what? We have two of the three referees tonight who don't call that many personal fouls or shooting fouls. So maybe I'm, you know, maybe rather than try to push it like I always do, I'm going to kind of hold back a little bit more tonight, not be as aggressive because these guys statistically don't reward you as much if you're if you go to the ball uh, the hole aggressively. And... Uh, that allows them to be a little bit more uh, judicious in how they use their skill to draw more fouls uh, so that, you know, they're not almost like wearing out their welcome by doing it too much because everyone knows, you know, James Harden, that's his M.O. He takes it strong in the basket as much as he can, but if he can be choosy, maybe he increases his efficiency in drawing more fouls per possession that he drives it to the basket uh, because he has information that these refs, they – have this worldview that in order to get a foul called, you basically have to be mugged, you know, and uh, that uh, 
they won't bail you out as much as other refs do. So, yeah, yeah I think I think you can really start digging uh, and getting more granular uh, after you use these overarching themes going into a game about ref tendencies in general and and pick and choose your spots better to, to increase your efficiency. Yeah, I, John, it's really cool work. We're out of time, but um, tell me, where can we find your work on the Internet? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, like you mentioned, uh, the Sloan paper is probably the best resource right now. Uh, you can also just easily find it, Google uh, Sloan Refs Revealed, and it's usually the first uh, link. And then um, you can follow me at, uh, at Ref Analytics on Twitter, and uh, we occasionally release some tidbits during games about referee tendencies, and uh, uh, so you can check us out there and Oh, you're ref, no. you're ref analytics. I didn't even put yeah. that. I literally <laughs> did not put that together. I follow you and interact with you. Like I didn't even put that together at all. Oh, no worries. Yeah, I saw the tweet earlier. I went ahead and uh, kind of clarified. Most of my interesting stuff is at at ref analytics. I mean, I tweet oh. personally, but I think ref analytics will be a little bit more interesting. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks, John. Again, uh, everyone, follow at ref analytics. It is an awesome follow, especially on game days. John, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. So I, I, I thought that was really interesting, just how different uh, NBA refs are in terms of di- calling different things, and I really do think that an NBA team could take advantage of them. I, I do, you know, I, I really don't. I, I, I totally understand the point of view of, of coaches, and, and you know, this is I'm not, you know, I'm not in the locker room daily with these guys, and so I, I can't necessarily speak to how much information they're having to inundate their players with, but. I feel like there has to be. You see the the you know, and anyone who's looking at the article now as they're listening or who who reads it afterwards can see there's a there's a big noticeable tangible gap here in some of these referees. And if you you, you know you don't have to have it in mind for every single game. You don't have to spend ten minutes before every game like okay, these are the two, these are the refs, these are their tendencies, but. When you find a big exploitable situation, like you, you know, you find a a situation where the refs are the, the, all three refs in the game have these massively declining three second calls in the fourth quarter, and then you can just tell your big man in the fourth quarter, just don't move, like just yeah. go in the paint and sit there, and that's that's a real advantage, a real basketball advantage. Yeah, and I I just think it's these kind of instructions aren't all that hard. You you don't have to bombard them with yeah. the stats, but you know if you do have a James Harden on your team, you can say, hey, be aggressive tonight, or maybe you know let's do more of the pick. And roll. Let's yeah. have you more on the perimeter tonight, and let's see what we can do with Dwight in the paint. You know, or hey, Dwight, don't move out of the paint in this fourth quarter. Like they're not going to call it. Just don't do. Just stay there. Yeah, and like, those are totally actionable things that are not. You know, the coach can say he doesn't have to say why to. Yeah. Uh, you know, that James Harden has to be aggressive or not, or Dwight Howard has to move out of the paint or not. You can just kind of give those instructions, and it doesn't necessarily have to be overwhelming for the player. Anyway, now we do have Brett Crane on the line. Brett uh, is more famous as at BJC7 on Twitter. Um, he also tweet, or he also is writing articles for SLC Dunk during the season, kind of recapping the referee performance for a lot of games. Brett, are you there? Hello? We may have lost Brett. We had him. We had him for a brief moment of time. I, I'm... Sure, he'll call back in if we can't get him on the line. Um, so just to continue that conversation while we while we wait for Brett, um, wanted to ask: Is there for the Jazz? I guess is there obviously in these kind of extreme situations when you have James uh, James Harden or Dwight Howard, these 
you know, big men, big players who have really extreme tendencies, there's something you can do. Is there something that the Utah Jazz could do, you know, tomorrow with this information? I think more in terms of that sort of that ending. One of the last questions that I asked there about taking the larger general trends from the league, because of course you know we're sitting here now in, in late August, and as we get into training camps and things like that, and if we're talking about tangible things the Jazz might be able to put into effect during those periods, like going into the season, I think it would be more things like. Okay, you know, we know that in the fourth quarter of close games, certain things are going to happen. We know that in, you know, we know that in the fourth quarter of close games, as we've mentioned a bunch of times, the defensive three-second calls might go down. Maybe we're going to see more contact getting called, especially if we're playing a good team. We know they've got a star. We we know that if the game's close in the fourth quarter and that star gets the ball, we're going to have to be pretty hands off because if you touch him too much, he's probably getting the calls. You know, and and of course you're doing this with the data backing it up. I don't have the data in front of me, but let's just say that was data that you had i think lots of things like that is where you could go yeah no i i agree okay let's try it again brett are you there i am perfect okay cool so brett tell us first of all um you've compiled these stats over the years tell us what it is exactly that you've compiled about the jazz refereeing stats and um some quick uh findings of yours using these stats yeah, well, uh, it kind of started for me when uh, Jerry Sloan resigned a couple years ago and Darren Williams was traded away a week later. Um, I kind of felt that the identification of the team, the identity of the team, excuse me, changed. Uh, the way they were going to be treated by officials, the way other teams were going to treat them, just basically everything changed. So once Ty Corbin took over, I started tracking um, the win-loss record for each official for home and away games that the Jazz played. And then about a year and a half into that, I actually started tracking, um, charting different games, and I was able to figure out, uh, you know, which officials were making more calls against the home team or the away team, and also from which position on the floor from the three refereeing positions. So let me ask, first of all, did you find any bias? Because as a Jazz fan, I always feel like, eh, this guy is biased against the Jazz. You know, uh, oh no, we have, I don't know, Dick Bavetta or Joey Crawford refereeing tonight, so we should expect a long night for the Jazz. You know, did that actually come out in in your data? You know, for the most part, it did not. Um, it was funny because obviously this last year skewed a lot of the uh, statistics because the Jazz just weren't very good. Yeah. So, you know, the officials weren't uh, weren't able to have an impact on a lot of the outcomes of the game because you know late in the fourth quarter the games were usually decided by that point. Um, it was funny though because the first couple years, uh, Dick Bavetta and Joey Crawford just you know, two of the names you threw out there were actually two of the more jazz-friendly officials. I was going to say, so, Joey Joey seems like he would be because the jazz don't have the star power, and Joey Crawford's entire life is about putting NBA stars in their place. <laughs> but I, yeah. I was thinking that he would actually be have to be one of the most jazz-friendly refs. Yeah, he definitely was. I think he enjoyed being maybe the biggest name on the court in some of the jazz He loves at it. certain points. Everybody's watching the game for Joey Crawford. Of course. So you've got the data on SLC Dunk, um, and I think it's interesting. The refs with the worst winning percentage are are no namers. I mean, so Derek Richardson is a is a worst winning percentage ref for the Jazz with a two and ten record. Kevin Cutler, Mike Callahan, Bill Spooner, Derek Stafford, Pat Fraher, Leroy, Leroy Richardson. Those are your top seven in terms of how poorly the Jazz did. And, you know, no one's yelling at, like, Pat Frey or Leroy Richardson uh, that they are biased. You know, it's just, it, it might just be random. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, obviously the opponent is going to um, dictate the pace of play in a lot of games for the Jazz, um, especially the last two years when it wasn't necessarily a real... Uh, 
consistent offense on a night-to-night basis for the team. So, uh, you know, a lot of that can affect it. Um, but I definitely think that if you compile the data over a certain amount of time, you're going to start to see, you know, not necessarily biases per team, but different outcomes that you can expect when certain officials are working. And I think this is kind of just more, you know, we talked to John before. This is this is a different kind of analysis, but this is, the, again, the type of thing where if you have intelligent people in your front office and things like that who know the, the areas to apply this, you can take information like this and add a further layer of complexity to the type of thing that John is doing, or you can you can take this information and add John's information to it, and that adds further layers of complexity, and I think that's kind of the name of the game in terms of that this is what analytics is kind of going forward, is and this is just the, sort of the referee side of it, this exists in every every element. Now, my question is, did how much do you think that the Jazz is, re- you, you said you were covering just during Corbin's uh, tenure. How much do you think the record last year overall just sort of skewed your results? Like, do you think that they're still fairly reliable, or just the fact that the Jazz lost the vast majority of their games last year, regardless of referees? Do you think that skewed things a bit? Uh, I think it definitely definitely skewed things if you're looking only at the win loss record. Uh, one of the things that I enjoyed doing uh, more than I thought was charting the games last year and the year before, and being able to see um, you know which officials were making the calls against the Jazz. Because obviously uh, the NBA officials do not work in the same crews like they do in Major League Baseball mm-hmm. and in the NFL. So these guys are working with two different partners virtually every night. Um, so you could certainly see different tendencies for an official who might make a call against a home team or against an away team, you know, late in the fourth quarter, um, you know, down the stretch and a call that might impact the game. Uh, so I think doing things like that. And then I would also keep uh, just basically one line of notes on each game. If there was a specific call at a certain point in the game that I thought influenced the way the rest of the game was played, I would mark that down. Um, and different things like that that I think I can refer back to that gives you a little bit more of an insight than just the win-loss record. So with those charting things, on a, on a play-by-play basis, what were some of your conclusions there? Um, you know, it was funny because you'd be able to see certain officials who, um, you know, for example, I'm going to throw out Mark Ayotte, who um, is a uh, an official who's been around the league for a little while. He, uh, he officialed a game that the Jazz played in Phoenix in March, I believe, of 2012, and it uh, throughout this down the stretch in the fourth quarter, it got to a point where he just was not making calls for the visiting team, which happened to be the Jazz. That was what got me started on the tracking, on the different things um, to follow, because I I just kind of felt that was useful information for a team to have to know that if there's going to be a block charge call down the stretch, or if there's going to be a 50-50 out of bounds call, it's probably going to go to the way of the home team if he's working a game. Did you find that to be a, a fairly noticeable trend across the, across the league's officials, or is it the type of thing where certain guys have have big gaps and then certain guys don't? Because we were kind of talking to John before as well about the sort of more of the general stats, rather than going into each specific referee, just sort of more of the the general type things you can tell your players. Did you get some of those as well, league wide, or was it more on an individual basis? Uh, it was definitely more on an individual basis. It was kind of funny because some of the officials that you would expect maybe to have a bias towards certain teams, they didn't. Uh, you know, the better officials, the guys that you see working the NBA Finals, you know, Dan Crawford, uh, Ed Malloy, uh, one of the better officials coming up throughout the league, Joey Crawford, believe it or not. Some guys like that are a more 50-50 type official. They're not going to make calls you know, trying to please the home crowd or please a certain coach, whereas a younger official who might want to make more calls so that their crew knows that they're there. See, and I think that's interesting because the eye test 
has us look at Joey Crawford, and you know he's kind of maybe the most eye-catching ref, and and intentionally so, I think he could, you could say. But in the end, it turns out if he's he's a middle of the road ref and actually a pretty good one, uh, and you know if by the eye test alone. We probably wouldn't decide that, but if we use these analytics, all, we, all of a sudden we can say, hey, maybe Joey's a pretty good ref. Maybe you know we're not getting an advantage either way from him. Sure, there's a reason why you see Joey Crawford or Ed Malloy or Monty McCutcheon or Scott Foster. All these guys, you know, they, they work the NBA Finals. They work the big games on, uh, you know, on the Sunday ABC game. They're going to work these games where the league wants to make sure they have control of the game because they can do that and because they are not going to be influenced by certain things throughout a game. So when you say have control of the game, you don't mean in the um, conspiracy theory way. You mean in no. that he's not going to lose control of the game necessarily in either direction. Yeah, there's a reason why uh, you know the Tim Donahue scandal came out. I don't mean it in that, uh, in that frame of mind, but uh, in a way where they're able to control the players so that they're not getting out of hand. Um, the players tend to respect officials more who have been around the league and they've got a relationship with and things like that. So the game might not be as chippy. It might be um, you know, basically more fairly balanced throughout. So something I've always wanted to ask you about now that I have you on the phone line, why, why Zach Zarba? Why is Zach Zarba <laughs> your favorite official? You know, honestly, uh, he was one of the younger officials in the league um, probably six, seven, eight years ago when I kind of started looking at some different things. And um, he's, you know, as dumb as it sounds, he's tall and he has dark hair. <laughs> and I have dark hair. And uh, some of his mechanics, the way he worked games, I, I just thought he did a great job. And it, you know, it's kind of ballooned into a little bit of a joke uh, on Twitter and amongst some other people. But uh, I think he's one of the better officials coming up throughout the league. And he actually worked his first NBA Finals game this year. So yeah, what was a proud moment for me, course, <laughs> I'm sure, was um, you was and Zach Zarba's parents. Or, I'm gonna be paying yeah. ten- more attention. I've been, now I've got to find a favorite ref. Like that's yeah. that's a thing I have to do now. Yeah, we should make that a requirement for every every hardcore fan should have a favorite referee. I think that's fair. Mine's Bill Kennedy because I just I love the flamboyantness. I you anyway. do enjoy his dancing. I do. <laughs> um, anyway, Brett, uh, do you have any plans? Are you going to still be doing this for next year? Um, do you have any plans to change it up? What are you looking at for next season? You know, I think um, obviously with a new regime for the Jazz this year, both. Um, since Dennis Lindsay has taken over, and then as well on the coaching staff as well. Uh, things are going to change again. The data that I compile for this year is not going to be as useful as it has in years past. Um, I'm sure I will continue to track it, but I'd like to probably focus more on an individual game basis this year with the charting and with the different things like that. So, um, you know, always open to suggestions if there's people that have uh, different things they'd like to see. Um, you know, I it's an easy time to, or a good time to change some things up. I, I just, uh, I'll give you my suggestion right now. We've sort of, we brought it up a couple of times. I, I'm into those sort of overall macro trends in terms of, and uh, you know, I don't know how much of this you'll be able to track yourself and with the resources you have, but how do how do referees over the entire league tend to change their calls based on game situations and time left in the game and the score in the game? That to me might be the largest. Tan- if we could really get 
data that we knew was reliable in terms of that stuff, I really think might be the, the most informative in terms of an on-court thing and for ways to instruct your players in ter- just in terms of the way as the, the way being able to, you know, in the course of a timeout at a certain time in the game, a coach can identify an exploitable situation based on league-wide referee tendencies. He can tell it to his players and it can make an impact right there on the court, you know? Yeah, and that's definitely one of the things, you know, I don't expect this to ever be something where players are running up and down the floor thinking to themselves, oh, hey, Leon Wood's in the slot position yeah. on this. He's going to make this call. It's never going to come to that. But there's that outside chance that in a in a timeout with a minute and a half left in the game, you might be able to say, hey, Derek Favors, think about this when you're in the post. You know, this guy might be down there. He has a tendency to do this. You know, it's not something that's going to be on the the forefront of the players' minds coming down the stretch. But with the different uh, analytical aspects of each coach's job, it might be something that gets brought up. And, you know, if it helps the team win the game, then I think it's, uh, it's proven its point. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks anyway, Brett, for joining us. You can follow Brett at BJC7, S-E-V-E-N, that's all spelled out, on Twitter. Um, and, yeah, Brett, thanks again for joining us. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. I actually really enjoyed that podcast. Like, I, I yeah. think that was a really cool topic to kind of explore because, like I said, it's not something that we get a chance to talk to, and yet it is kind of the undercurrent of all of these games. I, I do think this is something that we're going to probably see more of. And he, he, uh, uh, John first was kind of talking about a little bit about, it, and I didn't get a question, a chance to ask him, but he was talking a bit about his his consulting with Synergy, and I, I've I've wondered actually ever since the beginning of last season when, uh, you know, a Synergy or a Sport Viewer, a Vantage, or somebody like that might try and make a four into into more larger tracked data for referees. I think my sense is that Super Synergy might have something on it, but the regular Synergy, the regular people Synergy does not. I should look into that. Super Synergy is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we get so excited about analytics here on the Salt City Hoop Show. Okay, so anyway, as always, the last segment of the podcast the crazy trade idea of the week. This one, Ben, you've got from Twitter, correct? Yes, this is from Spencer Wixom. So a shout out to Spencer. He's, uh, he's always a really good uh, good conversation on Twitter. I enjoy conversing with him. And uh, he actually put this one up, I believe, right after we were done with the podcast last week. Uh, I probably listened to it and had a, a good idea himself. And I think, it's a, I think it's a reasonable one to look at. The deal is pretty simple. It's going to be a sign and trade for current restricted Phoenix free agent Eric Bledsoe. The deal would be Trey Burke and Ennis Cantor. And in return, we would get Bledsoe. Now, there are a decent number of moving parts. The the Bledsoe has not actually signed a contract. So signing Bledsoe to the contract and then trading him after that would be the thing that would need to happen. And of course, there's a lot of people expecting that Bledsoe is going to be demanding a max deal this year. Right. And you'd, if he is, you'd, you wonder whether the Jazz might want to commit that kind of money. That, that'd kind of be a fairly committed... Yeah, all of a sudden you're playing Eric Bledsoe, Gordon Hayward, a max deal, both max deals, and then Derek Favors, $12 million a year, yeah. and it, it gets the, iffy. So, so that's a question, but at the same time, you are then offloading Cantor, who, so, you know, that's not, uh, you don't, that's what, five and a half off the books this year, plus you don't have to worry about his extension going forward, which you're looking at potentially a, a pretty big deal, especially if he has a good year this year. You could see him making eight figures a year type of thing. Um, and that, and that's not money that you're worrying about. And of course, then you have to replace his position. But so, like I said, there are a lot of moving parts, but I, I think it's something that the Jazz could look into if they were comfortable with the, with the salary. It might be a little bit too much of a 
right now move for this year is mm-hmm. the one thing that I worry about. And we, we've talked about that every time we do the crazy trade of the week type of thing because there's you know there's just certain moves that the, whether you know while they might improve the Jazz this season, that might not necessarily be the best thing actually to improve them this season while also clogging up future cap. You know, right? Um, but you know, Bledsoe's a serviceable player. His his he's more than serviceable. Very, oh yeah, more than very much. More. That was a that was a, a very understated way of putting it. He's a he's a very good player. He can shoot the ball. I think he's a little underrated in that sense. He only did shoot thirty just over thirty five percent from three this year. But that's down from thirty nine the year before. He definitely has the ability to shoot the three ball. I think he could be fun, and I think he's the guy kind of type of guy long term who could potentially play with Exum and where they could be devastating maybe. And it, yeah and in terms of building a defensive mentality a defensive culture mm-hmm. in utah i think eric bledsoe would be a huge piece of that being oh, yeah. able to kind of influence the game from the perimeter on the defensive end um no i, I like the deal i think it kind of depends of if eric bledsoe decides you know i'm not going to take because it, it's been reported that he, he's been offered four years 48 million dollars if he's decided that he doesn't want to take that deal and instead wants to sign the qualifying offer with Phoenix, I could see Phoenix doing something like this just to get that short one-year term asset in Eric Bledsoe um, and get some long-term assets in Trey Burke and uh, Ennis Cantor. Does he become more or less valuable in a trade at that point? Like, let's just say he signed the qual- – first of all – well, then, if he didn't sign the qualif- let's say if he didn't want to sign with Phoenix, then for that sm- smaller twelve year million dollars a year mm-hmm. amount of money, then I think he would want the Jazz to pay him that maximum yeah. deal in order to be in order to sign the trade to do yeah. the sign and trade. Because in okay. the sign and trade, then you're negotiating with the team that you are signing trading with. So it would be Eric Bledsoe's agents talking with Dennis Lindsay, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. I will, I was just wondering if they, you know, if he did, because it, you know, we've heard things. Uh, Greg Monroe's another guy who might do this, who might just sign the qualifying offer, which means that you become an unrestricted after next year. It's, it's rare you don't see it that often, especially with good players. But it's it, it's something that's so, sort of starting to be involved in the calculus now. And I was wondering, is there a chance? I don't even know what the time period would be after they did that, where they, where he would be allowed to be traded. I just don't know if it would ever happen that way, right? Yeah, but, it could though. I mean, you could see him. Sign that qualifying offer, and then it's just a normal one-year standard contract. So yeah. it, you have to wait thirty days. Yeah. Just but then, like any other but then contract, all of a sudden, he's, he's a really it. valuable expiring, isn't he? That's like, a good point. Sort of, well, but then is he less valuable as an expiring because <laughs> he's not old? Like, like I said, there's kind yeah. of a lot of moving parts to it. But I think it could be something to look into if you're in the right frame of mind as the Jazz front office. Yeah, these are the sorts of questions that I think a front office has to look at just to see how many different ways they can improve their team. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's it for the the show. We had a really great refereeing conversation today thanks for, to john ball and brett crane for joining us you can follow them at ref analytics and at bjc7 on twitter uh, as always you can follow all of our great pieces at saltcityhoops.com thanks again for listening and talk to you next week